Welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. Attentive listeners will have noticed that we've had a little bit of a break. And look, there's lots of reasons for that. But the main thing is, is that we're back. And thanks to all of you who minded us to try and make space for this again. And without further ado, we'll get on with introducing this new season. And this week, we spoke with uh, Marilyn Anderson, who's the Professor of Sustainable Construction Technologies in EPFL in Lausanne where she heads the Laboratory of Integrated Performance in Design that she launched in 2010. Before this, she was uh, working in MIT, where she founded their Daylight Lab. And Marilyn is many things. She's a scientist, a designer, a thinker about the impact on human psychology from the built environment, most notably through uh, the use of daylight in her research. And she came to the subject through a really interesting route, which we're going to explore in this conversation, but also then has gone on to leadership in academia. She was the former dean of EPFL, where she directed a huge faculty. And we talk about this a bit. And what I love about her work is its precision, but then also its accessibility in the sense that like this incredibly deep research that she's doing is throwing up really great insights into things that might be intuitive or taken for granted or things that were, I suppose, vernaculars but we might have got set aside or pushed aside through other uh, trends within architectural culture. And so as a voice exploring, as a professor of sustainable architecture, her take on it is really interesting, which is to look at the whole breadth of the subject, not just the specifics of energy, although those are important, but actually the whole breadth of what constitutes um, sustainability from her perspective here of daylight but by extension I suppose she invites us to think more generally about these things. In any event I really enjoyed talking to Marilene and I hope you enjoy the chat that follows so uh, catch you at the end. Thank you. So Professor Marilene Anderson you're so welcome to the Kingston School of Art. Thanks a million for coming. Thank you. So it's great to meet you again and I mean the reason I first got to know you was we were on a jury together and we were talking in that situation and then I became acquainted with your research. But before we get to the research, I I just wanted to go way earlier, which is what took you to the subject? How did you start out? How did you get into studying, etc.? So you studied in the APFL, did you? Or yeah, absolutely. I studied physics, actually. Yeah. So this is my background. And then towards the end, I kind of went back to my former love, so to speak. I had a hesitation between architecture and physics at the very beginning. But for me, architecture was this perfect combination of drawing, which I liked, and science. But actually, this is not true. Architecture has to be something you want to do. You want to produce buildings, which was not my main interest. So I have no regrets having chosen physics. But it was nice for me to go back to, in my master thesis, to something that would relate somehow to architecture. And light was the perfect kind of in-between, something more emotional or artistic, which was I was drawn to, and also where I could use my physics background. And so this is where I started to work on light. Then I uh, became, a, uh, after my PhD, I became a professor at MIT. And this is where I went from a more technical take on light or daylight to a more human-centered uh, take on light or daylight research through actually an encounter with someone from the Harvard Medical School, our huh. neighbor. Okay. And so this is where it started around 2000 and five more or less um and so i started to work on both fronts the more technical optical one and the more human and then when i got appointed back at epfl uh, a few years later it was the opportunity for me to dig more into 
what I really uh, started to love more and more, which was the human aspects of, of daylight, daylight research. And uh, little by little, maybe move away from the more technical aspects. So today, I would say I really specialize in psychophysiological effects of daylight. Yeah, it's amazing. So when you were studying physics, it was theoretical physics or kind of physics as a pure subject. So elementary particles, the wave particle duality, all this stuff, right? All this stuff, yes, yeah. but just as a student. So just as I a did student. my bachelor and master in physics, yes. Yeah. So you do all that and quantum mechanics. and uh, But at, towards the end of my master's, I was... I wouldn't say fed up, but I wanted things to look a bit more real because yeah. everything, the world was in equations. And so I wanted my master's thesis to be closer to something I could actually see rather than just put an equation on. Yeah. And light, at least you could have a beam yeah. <laughs> that you could see. And so this was a, a, a very interesting opportunity to uh, yeah, go back to something slightly more tangible. And I, I think this is what drew me from more theoretical physics, I mean, as theoretical as you can be when you're only still a student, yeah. to uh, master and then PhD. Yeah. So, and the PhD then is in light. It's in light as a, well, maybe you, you'll have the terminology. I'm just curious, and I know our listeners will be curious. So what, could, what tr properties of light were you interested in then, or what aspects of it? So it was already very applied, actually. Yeah. So it was not anything about the fundamentals of light or light speed or anything. No, it was an instrument. Yeah. An instrument that would measure how light would be redirected either through transmission or reflection, through or on uh, materials applicable to facades. So there was an application ah. to architecture already, and this was about materials that would uh, be difficult, uh, whose um, interaction with light would be difficult to predict. It doesn't mean super sophisticated material, even a Venetian blind or a fabric blind. It's not so easy ah. to anticipate how light will interact with these kinds of materials, very common materials, and yet the interaction between light and these materials is not so easy. And so I developed an instrument uh, which <laughs> was called a bi-directional goniophotometer, so a, a mouthful. I like that <laughs> word. And you said it so well, Marnie. I'm not even going to attempt it. Yeah, so go on. So my parents never got to it, and neither, neither did my sister. So this was a word. And sometimes people said, you have to find another word. So when I was at MIT and I developed another type of goniophotometer, I called it the heliodome. And this worked much better uh, as a word. Uh, but the idea was to have an instrument based on digital imaging uh, that that would, through images, capture that light transmission or reflection and then being calibrated so as to extract the values of mm. transmission. So you end up building a, a function, a spatial function of where the light goes, depending on where it comes from. Yeah. So this is getting lux levels on a surface under certain conditions and an instrument that can test that? Is that kind of lighting level or is it much more scientific, granular? So first of all, it's not lux because lux would be the, the amount of light you receive on a surface. This was more luminance space, yeah, yeah. so how much light was emitted by a surface, but gotcha. this is very technical. So then you go to MIT and when you arrived there, you were still very much in the physics space or were you already kind of interested in pushing this further into architecture that, that came later? So architecture was the, the space of application, yeah. has always been because this goniophotometer was meant to measure materials that were architectural materials, ultimately. Yeah. So there was a link to architecture. So it was, I would say, building physics, maybe. Yeah. And then when I got to MIT, yes, I was joining a building technology group that was part of a department of architecture. Okay. And so this was my, f not first, but first true 
encounter or immersion into an architecture department with architecture mindsets and uh, discussions and debate that happened in architecture. Uh, but I started, as you said, with a physicist mindset myself. And so I entered into studio critiques with the, um, the position that there is a right and a wrong. Yeah. So you can have a wrong orientation of a building or a right one, or you can position your windows properly or improperly. improperly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I quickly learned, uh, fortunately, it was quick enough not to be fired. <laughs> I learned quickly that this is not how you work in architecture. You don't work by saying this is right or wrong. You work through conversations, through debates, through arguments that also have always leave open little space for for discussion, actually. And so you don't, it's not a deterministic uh, kind of discipline. And so I learned both through my teaching of using examples in my teaching that were more that my students could relate to better. And they even told me, we love your classes, Marilyn, but please don't use examples with a light pole or infrared light, but please use just words that relate to us, like office lighting. And yeah. so, again, I uh, fortunately learned quite quickly, but I was very grateful to my students to be benevolent enough to tell me what they liked, but also what would improve my, my courses. And so I, I think in the course of a, probably a couple of years, I started to be better integrated, let's say, in, in terms of the mindset in, in the how architecture works. And then I we organized a, a workshop in uh, in Cambodia on a, a really interdisciplinary way. So this, um, uh, yeah, the, the, these dynamics between disciplines became something that I really enjoyed. Uh, so I came, yes, with a physics background, but I started to get more and more interested in the the interface between uh, these different ways of thinking about research or, or design. Yeah, but that's fascinating because you know this kind of gray area of nuance and debate that we're, we're always teasing out in a human science like architecture, right? Uh, but it's very interesting and very astute what you said there, which is that you come with an idea that there's right or wrong. Now, you know this well, Marilyn, there are architects with no physical background, physics background, who still believe that this is right and this is wrong, and there are orthodoxies and canonical things. Or even now, actually, even though I'm hugely sympathetic to and aware of our need to respond to to the climate challenge as a, as a profession, there are also puritanical kind of poles in that debate on both sides, you know. And actually, it seems to me that the nuances actually, architecture, whenever it, 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 it adheres to certainties, tends to make horrific mistakes of some kind or another. And the ability to negotiate and to, to kind of work things out collectively does seem to bear fruit long term. But what I'm interested in is somebody who sits I'm obviously biased and implicated, and of course I would say that, wouldn't I? But is that a matter of decorum that you move to that space, or do you see a knowledge generation happening there that is useful, that is tangible? Do you know what I mean? As a physicist initially, or somebody who is rigorous and clear, how do you see the muddy waters of architecture if you were to be... Yeah, yeah. Talking to, if, if a physicist friend of yours bumped into you from when you were in college and they were in a room with architects, how would you describe it? What would you see there that is of value or of not of value? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think what is of maybe greatest value uh, is the capacity that architects develop through their studies and their practice to respond well to ill-defined problems, mm. to problems that don't have a real solution. Whereas engineers, and as I was dean for, for five years of a school that regrouped architecture with 
civil engineers and uh, environmental scientists. So you had a, a little bit of everything in, in that school. And uh, I could see, and, and I, uh, amongst some of the initiatives that I led, I, I brought them to participate or brought EPFL to participate in, um, in a competition, a solar housing competition, where you have to bring in a lot of engineering and architecture, but also marketing and, uh, and communication and uh, electrical engineering, mechanical. It's a, it's a lot of, it's a, a big mess because a building is a mess to yeah. get through. Yeah. Um, and there you could see this confrontation of abilities, the engineers coming with great abilities to solve well-defined problems in a very efficient way and very rigorously and the architects coming with a great capacity not to be scared of an ill-defined problem, one that you don't even know where to start, but they start with references, with trial and error. It's kind of a spiral process rather mm. than a linear one. And also it's a process that ultimately works on conviction, whereas the engineers or scientists work on demonstration. Mm. And then when you have, I think there is a lot from both of these worlds to learn from each other. Engineers would learn a lot from being more comfortable with ill-defined problems because all the challenges the world faces today are ill-defined. And uh, whereas the designers could benefit from this rigor that uh, we learned in, in engineering uh, studies to stick to evidence-based and make sure you go to the end of the argument. But ultimately, architecture, to me, is not something that is the end of an optimization uh, process, which sometimes is the danger, for example, of using digital tools and thinking that it is. It's mm, not. Mm. It's really more of a, as we would call it, a satisfaction yeah. problem where you want to be satisfied with how you ended up working out your priorities, whether they are explicit or implicit. And, uh, and, and so you work out something great, hopefully, that uh, isn't too wrong on certain aspects and is wonderful and, and impressive uh, on, on others. So this uh, complementarity in how to think about a problem, I think it's super uh, beneficial, would be super beneficial on both sides. And maybe there is not enough permeability between these disciplines to take advantage of it when a university has both, like EPFL does and yeah. like MIT has that also. Yeah, and here, and here in Kingston also, and lots of schools, and it's interesting, when I was in a, Oh, I was in a different school um, in Queens in Belfast where we were also with uh, civil and structural engineers and they were the much bigger school and architecture was the small, expensive, annoying part of the school, if we're honest. And But we had a very good director of research, uh, Greg Keefe, who came in and allowed them to understand us. And he, he, he took them down to their own huge laboratories where they broke beams and he went, look, it's very simple. For you guys to understand something, you break it and then he took them upstairs. And what we do to understand something is we make it. Because without making it, we don't know what the problem is. And he, in that switch, he kind of got them to understand the value of both. But it was an interesting one in the sense that the scientific method or those kind of rigorous methods, they depend on skepticism for their engine. You know, so it, rigorous skeptical inquiry at all stages is how they advance. And in architecture and in, in a lot of the kind of cultural and humanistic sciences, too much skepticism kills the idea in formation, but too little skepticism or skepticism that isn't heard produces, yeah, the false certainties, the dogmas, the imposed uh, orthodoxies that also are hugely problematic. And so there's this very interesting 
territory where we have to be able to work with students and architects to accept critique and to understand where it's coming from, but also to posit critique in a way which is rigorous, you know, that can advance the work. Do you know what I mean? It's a different... Uh, it's a different it's a different discourse, but it's one that architecture, I think we haven't had it centrally to it, which is how do we critique each other? We have critics, yeah, and we have historians and all that kind of stuff. But actually, between all of those, there's a way to talk about something information and how to advance that thing information. That is a method, but that we sort of let happen by itself. And I wonder whether it's as simple as that. I wonder whether it's as as clear as that. The, the reason I'm going on at length is that that project that you described where you took everybody together to make this solar house is very interesting in the fact that architecture really doesn't have a disciplinary boundary. You know, we've tried for centuries to, to, to enforce one, but there isn't one. It's too promiscuous. It's too connected with too many things, health and human science and physical, physical science, etc., so that we don't really have a disciplinary boundary and we shouldn't be interested in policing it. And it's when these other areas come to bear that you begin to get the kind of work methods you're talking about where sceptical, mechanistic, scientific-based inquiry is put together with something more teleological, perhaps, a more belief-based system about putting something together. And that's fascinating to me in the sense that you ran a whole school of... I mean, this is an incredible career. So you come back and you're dean of EPFL, a school of architecture, engineering, all of these things together. Biochemistry, right? So there's a huge territory there. And before we get into the real substance of your light research now, I just wanted to talk about that because that to me just sounds like a daunting job, right? You know, you're running a huge organization, thousands of students, many hundreds of staff. What was that like? I mean, how did you find that your side of the table? Um, so it was daunting as an idea at first, indeed. And it was soon after I came back. So I came back uh, from 2012 and became dean in 2013. So I had just had three years to set up my lab and try to run and also find funding channels to fund interdisciplinary research, which is funding instruments are not made for no. interdisciplinary research. So I quickly learned uh, that actually you should not show that you're interdisciplinary. I just look for funds in a discipline, for example, something very scientific, and actually I apply it to architecture, but I don't talk about it in the ah. proposal. I just do it. <laughs> so that so, but this had I had to figure out, yeah, quickly enough to to have enough grants to to run, and then uh, indeed uh, I became dean and. Um, and I thought this would be so overwhelming. And I guess, well, it, it is and is not because ultimately there are two things you just need is a very strong common sense. You just have to follow the common sense and a strong sense of ethics. And the rest follows in a way. Um, and if, so my style of leadership is more of a uh, federating energy. So I try to show a path forward and then to bring people to make this project their own. It was not a, a well-defined project. It was an ill-defined project. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but to have some directions, like I had like five main axes where I wanted, you know, I wanted more cohesion. I wanted growth. I wanted so, so certain things, communication and so on. And so and I was very clear of how I wanted to get started on this, but I needed everyone to come with me. And um, and so uh, projects like that solar house, the solar the Catalan competition, 
was a way to federate energy, in this case, student energy, so that they could see there was something more to gain by working together with people that are not like you. And so this was done from a student level, but also led some initiatives on um, innovation to get some some of the startup potential out of lab through the young, the yeah. young people like postdocs and, and PhDs. Uh, and um, I, I also developed kind of a digital platform to see ourselves as a whole, because as you said, we had social scientists and architects together with structural engineers and uh, geothermal engineers, but also biochemists in the environment and ecologists and so on. So everyone was together. So why are we together? And so let's first see each other as being together and then see where the synergies are inside. I created what was called an affinity map. So try to see where the affinities might lie. And, and anyway, so these were um, the years of, of deanship. So from not knowing what it would be, then it became natural to do the right things, at least what I thought was the right, and then to see that people would come along with me, professors and and staff and, and, and students, I mean, uh, with more or less proximity. It's not like I was talking to every single person in the, in the school. <laughs> <laughs> but that's kind of remarkable in the sense that that's a des- what you've described as a design uh, approach, right, which is you've de- you designed it, you designed a structure or a system by which people would spontaneously or feel like spontaneously have common cause to engage with something, right? Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it, I, it's true that I, de- I, I designed that with help, but th- this platform, it's more that I tried to give o- over and over again this idea that there was a reason we were together. We were all uh, wondering gotcha. about the quality of space, whether yeah. it was the natural or the built space. It was all about quality of space, so that was a common denominator, as we would say in mathematics, and uh, and therefore to try to encourage people to want to talk to one another a bit, knowing also that I'm, I'm not at all in favor of generalism, so absolutely not. I really think we need very deep roots to have something to contribute to the conversation, so I am absolutely not convinced that we should all know a little bit of everything. No, we should know a lot about some things very deep. And then from that, we should also have the ability to connect uh, at, on a broader scale to others and listen and, and, and be heard because the others listen. Yeah. So that's more how I, 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 I saw things. So that there was a yeah more cohesion and maybe just more enthusiasm in contributing to the institution. That was maybe my main hidden goal. So it was, it when you say designed, I didn't feel like I had a plan that I had to write down and then follow. It was more natural than that, more organic that I have just week after week, I thought, oh, let's do that. Let's first meet every one of the professors in the school and on a one by one basis so that I know what their agenda is and so on. And then Oh, let's uh, have someone go to all the labs to see what they're doing. And then let's have these gatherings. And and whenever I would take a big decision, like dismantling an institute, which is a big decision as a leader, make it a workshop. And then I have a workshop with everyone involved so that it it becomes a common discussion and uh, not a common decision. This was still ultimately mine, but one that would be endorsed by most because they would have heard and participated to what led ultimately to the decision, which I hadn't taken before the workshop, but after. So all these things. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, th- but this is exactly what I mean. I think it's beautiful what you're talking about there, beca- because that is design to me, which is that, you know, when we sit down to design a building or make something, 
you've no idea what it's going to be like at the end, or one has no idea. So there isn't. So there is this post facto story of design, which architecture has sort of peddled, uh, and laterally is dismantling, thank God, which is that it's always clear, but it's never clear. Even when it's finished, everybody sees it differently and gets different things out of it. So this thing where you make something, you see the next step, then that produces further steps. But there's an overall intuited or consciously articulated direction that's constantly inflecting and responding to what the information it receives is, is designed to me like it is an architectural approach, you know, um, and even like dismantling the institution, the, the, not the whole institution, not the whole <laughs> institution. <laughs> no, I mean, dismantling the whole institution, that would be a difficult workshop. But <laughs> the, 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 you know, it, 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 there are times in, in, in a client interaction where you have to actually dismantle aspects of their aspirations or yours or lots of things. And they and even in complex bodies, you know, like a big organization where certain preconceptions they might have had in terms of an agenda of some type need to be taken apart for certain reasons. Yeah, there's ways to do that and there's ways not to do that. And there's ways that you can get buy in from a local community or from your client base. And there are ways that you absolutely can't. And that buy in isn't simply about selling a message it's about hearing them so that that message is in the thing that you do do you know what i mean so anyway it's a digression but it's interesting for our students listening that architectural forms of thinking they actually do shape how we can handle institution handle people talk about these kinds of challenges i think that's just worthy of 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 marking but then i want to get back to something much more um direct now and and why you're here today and i mean you met you mentioned that it came from an interaction with somebody in MIT, a medical, uh, somebody in the medical space that you met when you're over there. And, and it's grown now to this interest in, I'm going to use the wrong words, but it feels an understanding of human psychology and human flourishing in response to daylight, but also elements of biology, like you talk a lot about the eye as an instrument and how it affects the body, what things it triggers. And obviously, as an architectural nerd, like I'm imagining spaces as you're talking about this. So, I mean, I've got a lot into that question. Is it even a question? But what I'm interested in is this aspect of your work, which is the human body in light and the effect on humanity that the structures we make and the cities we make have on light, where it began, how you grew it, and you now you're directing Lipid, and we'll talk about that later. But yeah, so this first interaction with the person in MIT. Yeah, so it was actually someone at Harvard. I'm uh, oh, sorry, I keep that's for now. I'll leave in the Harvard bit earlier on. So that's where I got the Harvard from. So it was at Harvard. Okay. <laughs> Apologies to colleagues in Harvard and MIT for getting them reversed twice. <laughs> so yeah, so it was a, a as many things that uh, open up to new opportunities happened by chance or serendipity. We were both supposed to give a lecture. Uh, so he was a professor uh, at Harvard Medical School and, and I was at MIT and uh, we both had to give a lecture at the same time and the lecture was cancelled for an unknown reason or that one that I don't remember but as a surprise and so we were both there with time on our hands and so we had lunch together and uh, and that's when we started to talk uh, to each other about what we were doing. His name is Stephen Luckley and um, and uh, and both on, on both sides this led to huh for me, ah, this is a really fascinating. Oh, he's a neuroscientist and working on um, uh, circadian photoreception and, and, and circadian rhythms and, and sleep and so on. And uh, I work on, on daylight. And so 
for me, this was a fascinating new uh, area of investigation that I would love to discover more. And for him, it was maybe an area of application of, of this very fundamental work, having a, a place, a context in which it can matter, yeah. uh, like the built environment. And so uh, we co-supervised the master students and so on. And in the meantime, I, um, I also was advising a student who uh, had an interest in perceptual aspects of, of daylight and, and uh, related to contrast. So we started to work together. And so between, I would say, this more perceptual aspect and the more physiological aspect, those two started to really um, enthuse me into, the, okay, so we can go way beyond optics and, and this bidirectional gonia photometry uh, and, and really uh, think about who we build buildings for, which are its occupants. So yeah, we can talk about materials at length, and of course this is a very important part of the building, but it was uh, almost going back to the beginning or back to the essential question of okay, buildings are only there because of humans or for humans. So what are the needs of humans in the context of a built environment? And today I'm um, thinking a lot about our needs versus our expectations. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I talk about daylight or, or research in daylight, people sometimes mistake this as Demotics like building controls and smart stuff and uh, you can talk to your uh, heating system and so on. Yeah, you can if you want. But this for me has become an expectation of modern technology. It's not a need. Our, our needs are related to gravity and physiology and uh, the, the, how our body interacts with our environment. And light is part of those fundamental needs. So. Uh, to know better what these needs are ultimately also links to the energy question because why do we use energy in buildings to uh, fulfill our needs? Uh, if we didn't have any needs and we were happy in a cave that would fluctuate in temperature with the outside, we would need buildings yeah. and we just need maybe a shelter for rain and that's it. Uh, so um, when we talk about the energy consumption of a building, no, it's not the energy consumption of the building, it's uh, of the the building to serve the occupants. With no occupants, there is no energy. So um, so I, I got a little tired of the energy question related to daylight, like what is the payback time and yeah. why should I invest in this? How much time would it take me to get back this investment? Uh, no, the, so by now, uh, the the my narrative, let's say, or, or, or what drives me in my research is is much more related to better understanding how we interact with light, with daylight in particular. So it does go from the more neuroscience related aspects like chronobiology, how light impacts our physiology and, and, uh, and our health ultimately. Also what we appreciate with daylight and, uh, and, and how we have our preferences or, or um, how we respond to different daylit environments or to views out and things like that. And then also what we need quote unquote, to function like comfort, like enough daylight to do our tasks, but not too much to not feel glare. So comfort aspect. So these three pillars has have by now become pillars are which I, I really enjoy working and go deep into, uh, which still leads to collaborations with ophthalmologists or psychophysicists or neuroscientists for a large part. Uh, and they keep bringing new uh, ways of asking new questions and, and more recently with a, an art exhibition that allowed me to 
dive into this other way of talking about knowledge, in this case, scientific knowledge, through a more personal and a more emotional lens the, with art. And, uh, and all these are fascinating to discover. So to be an academic means that you can connect to all these things and try out and ask yourself new questions every time and, and, and connect to as many fields as you want, really. Yeah, this is amazing. And it's kind of just there's, there's, there's so much there, too much for us to get into in the podcast. And I mean, one of the reasons you're here, Marlene, is I share your um, this, this, this. We need to reconnect with fundamentals in terms of lots of areas like architecture in the sense that I love the cultural histories of architecture, but I'm much more interested in gravity, material, proximity, territory, light, ventilation. And they're all part of a sustainable future, but that isn't the only reason we do this. They're, yes, they have lower energy aspects and they produce buildings which are actually can be argued for in those terms, but equally understanding them better is better for human flourishing and better for the cultures and territories that surround these buildings. And so we might just go to a few of the things that you mentioned there. I mean, the big one, obviously, is to start with is the circadian rhythm, which is effectively is our clock, which is set by light, right? So this is, is this correct? Is that my body is a clock and it sets itself every day by how it interacts with light. Is that right? It is actually okay, right. Yes. Okay, so how does that work and how does that happen, right? So in a, in a nutshell, so and, and light is named the giver of time, uh, we use a German word for that, the Zeitgeber, huh. giver of time, literally the giver of time. Uh, and so by having light in the morning, we tell our body now it's the morning and that light has to um, include enough blue, which daylight does. Uh, it doesn't need to be blue light. It needs to be light that has some blue because the photoreceptor that will capture that signal is more sensitive to the blue. It's called the melanopsin. And that was only discovered 20 years ago, only 20 years ago, which was a, a big drama because the, I mean, drama scandal in a way because scientists couldn't believe we would have overlooked such an essential and ancient photoreceptor for wow. so long when we have um, studied the eye for centuries and, and what? We, we missed that so fundamental aspect because this, uh, this photoreceptor we have in our eye, mammals have it in their eye and, and many species, whether they have eyes or not, are also entrained by light. So they also are um, sort of following that light-dark cycle that the earth on which we have evolved uh, leads us to experience. And so, yes, so the, this uh, kind of dose of light that we get in the morning tells our body that this is the day. And then we have, as humans, become alert and, and do our stuff, let's say. Uh, whereas in the evening, light that you would get in the evening would wrongly tell your body that it is still the day and that you should not prepare for night and not prepare to produce melatonin, uh, the hormone that we produce at night in the absence of light, uh, and therefore would sort of artificially delay your biological clock. And this is what we are facing right now, is that actually we are light deprived during the day. Hmm. We don't have enough light and therefore we also don't have enough of that signal at the beginning or over the day that this accumulation of light that we need. And we have too much of it in the evening because of our social life and lifestyles in, in, uh, in urban environments where we are uh, much more exposed to light than we have evolved under in the evening. And therefore we artificially uh, 
prolong our day and don't really start it so well. And this can have implications on, on health and the immune system and sleep quality and mood and uh, alertness and all that. Um, so the, the, the big debate on blue light that we have all heard about is, is all coming from this knowledge now that all this happens through this photoreceptor, uh, photoreceptor in the back of our eye melanopsin, sensitive, to, more sensitive to blue. Um, but we should not mistake blue light as being bad light. It's light that we desperately need in the morning, just have too much of in the in the evening. And things that we have all experienced, I'm, I'm sure, seasonal affective disorder. So the fact that we are more depressed or down or tired in the winter is because we miss part of that light. And, and daylight, we can say, yeah, but we can just work it out with electric lighting. Our brain uh, makes us believe that it's similar amounts of light because we adjust to the intervals that we yeah. are here. But no, it's about 100 times dimmer indoors than outdoors, kind of overall. Uh, and therefore, where, whereas we have evolved outdoors with 100 times brighter light, now we think we have enough indoors, but I mean, it's not true. Yeah, that's the whole debate. Uh, 20 years of research have not answered that question yet of how how low can you go uh, to still be uh, be healthy? But yeah, so this is an endless uh, or still a very open research field um, where the built environment has a lot to say because it plays the role of a filter yeah. to that light. Yeah, and that filter is our streets. It's the buildings we're in. And obviously technologies allow us to build and have done now for some time deep plan, you know, core anchored buildings where... You are like, I mean, at the moment, Marilyn and I are in a room with absolutely no windows, <laughs> which is for sound reasons. But this building we're in, which is the Kingston School of Art, is a deep plan building with cores anchoring the center of it. And yeah, there's windows at the edges and so you navigate into those. But, we, you know, on a given day, you would spend most of your time in a building like this. And then your point is that we leave at, at work clothes and we're in the outdoor environment. We might socialize outside, have a glass of wine uh, with a friend at a table. But the whole clock then is, is, is adjusting differently to that. So in that, in that condition then, as designers or people who think about space, if, you, we were, if we were to look at this, are there buildings that you've been to or that you've experienced which are intuitively good at this, like that work beautifully in this way? Do you know what I mean? In terms of how they are structured to reflect light. Now, these could be older vernacular buildings. They could be buildings you've been to more recently. But I'm interested in hearing some architectural examples of buildings which are progressive or which are interesting from your perspective as somebody obsessed with light. Or are there any? So, I mean, the answer will be a bit flat because from those perspectives or the, if you look at it from this uh, point of view, the closer you are to being outside, the better. Yeah. Because this is what is the best to drive your clock or your body, because this is how you we evolved and we, it would take us hundreds of thousands of years to continue our evolution to maybe more dim environment and be uh, healthy with that. And our, our descendants would be the ones who survived that new phase <laughs> of evolution. <laughs> um, so that means uh, that brightly daylit buildings or well daylit buildings with narrow plan, bilateral lighting, possibly also zenithal uh, opening. So bathed in light, of course, from that perspective would be bet, but best, but 
there are two things to pay attention to is on the one hand uh, the more you glaze the more you overheat so all these these questions and second daylight is 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 great of course but uh, once you're inside and your brain adapts to this other range uh, glare and discomfort can become uh, reasons for you to hate the daylight and then go uh, against it. So both the control of light and the control of heat become major aspects. So where the buildings I would find the, 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 the best are those that combine these more, let's say, uh, basic requirements, but do two other things that they also there is no way where you can distinguish what you would call architecture from what you would call engineering or the performance of the building. That yeah. it is so interconnected that you cannot say this is this is the architecture part, this is the engineering. No, it's all one because they all have a dual or a triple function. So for me, this is what makes a building beautiful too, is that everything is one and that the experience of say daylight is special as well that it it has something remarkable about the way it offers an experience a daylight experience so it's not enough to build something that works even that works nicely between engineering and architecture it also has to merit to exist and therefore to build something rather than nothing in nature that is so i mean a priori so much more beautiful or, or, or at least has all the assets that we would crave means it has to be sublime like to, to to go beyond and this is where I would say these perceptual aspects of daylight also come into play it's it's uh, a necessity to ensure comfort and control and, and so on and so forth it's um, a tribute to architecture and engineering to bring them together and the experience of the occupant being something special where the the humanity the human uh, sort of how far humans can go in making something that is above yeah. uh, the obvious uh, then it's a tribute to humanity so this for me <laughs> would be the ultimate building now, how many examples do, do i have to tell you well, i don't this is more of a theoretical well it's uh, very interesting but even even if you just pick on what i mean i'm interested in this i mean this not exactly what you're talking about but you know, uh, there was an essay by the uh, Austrian architect Hermann Czech years ago about cafes in Vienna, the old cafes. And it's about many things, but really at the end of it, it's about the mirror. And he talks about the mirror in the Viennese cafe as doing a couple of things, which is that it allows you to look over the shoulder of the person you're having the coffee with and relax your eyes to infinity to just take that pressure off the eye and it was this lovely observation and then he goes into a lot of detail about how the mirror is framed and the illusions that happen but the point is that uh, I went yeah that is absolutely right like there's times I like even no matter how interesting the conversation is I just want to look and let my eye relax so there's this level of your understanding of what's happening in the body and the eye is constantly changing in response to architecture I mean the body's constantly changing in response to architecture comfort thermal gradients but the eye above all else right is dilating, it's adjusting. I'm remembering the first time I went to Clipan, which is a building by Leverance. The lights weren't on and it took me 15, maybe 20 minutes to adjust to the darkness. Do you know what I mean? Just to get comfortable with it. And then turning around and seeing the windows was almost painful. 
so there's these things that I'm interested in. So I'm kind of curious what your examples of it in this way are, like things that you remember that are somehow beautiful, that somehow capture some of these things that you're talking about. I, it's hard to give a specific example because every time you give one, then there is, this is great, but there is this and that, because this is maybe also what makes architecture so interesting and beautiful is that you can never reach true perfection. Well, maybe one example that is getting close, yeah. close enough. It's so uh, obvious as an example, but it's uh, it's striking also. It's the 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 Vals Therm yeah. uh, thermal bath uh, in um, in the eastern part of Switzerland, um, and uh, I. I'm talking about them because the and and I mean it has been covered by so many uh, books and uh, so it's not a surprise but the the reason why I wanted to bring them up is back because it is one of these objects that combine these different aspects there is it's a well controlled environment and so all the basics are of, of course okay but from a perceptual standpoint and an experience standpoint, of course, there is experience of water and so on, but also the experience of how to frame views in a very uh, attentive way. Mm. It's not everything. Everything could be glass. I guess you, you could go get away with that. But no, you will deliberately have a lot of opacity and, and just moments where you can see outside in a very definite framing of the view and then some... Uh, discrete appearances of daylight that give you both a sense of orientation but also a sense of connection to the outside without necessarily have a vi uh, having a visual connection mm. to the outside. Um, and what was... Uh, last time we went there uh, with, with my, my two daughters, our two daughters, and we first visited other... or experienced other baths by a, another very famous architect that I won't name because there was <laughs> it was an intermediate step. And there we try to make them attentive to, okay, so let's have a close look at where we are, the thermal baths that are also revered as, as beautiful and whatever. But then let's look at the details. Let's look at where the light comes in, mm. how we connect to the outside, how space is linked to one another, whether every detail has been taken care of, whether there are some things there. And yes, there, no, it wasn't as uh, accomplished, let's say. And then when you go from, you know, the normal public pool to uh, a well thought through uh, thermal bath and then to valves, you see how with the same brief, kind of, you have to build baths, uh, you can get to this sublime experience of light and materials and the rocks and the reflection on those rocks and the texture and then the in and out and connection and orientation and, and all that. So um, without this being a very heavily daylit building, in fact, which, because for that kind of a uh, program, you don't necessarily need it. You can go outside and, and, and swim under the sky also. So uh, it, yeah, this is probably a, a bit uh, basic example, but of a, of a way to look at light that uh, is maybe beyond the, the glass box that has <laughs> that has mobile shading to, to take care of overheating, which would not... But that, uh, that, that's really interesting, because, yeah, it is a well-known example, but it's generally talked about um, for lots of other reasons, you know, to do with, uh, well, it's plan order or, uh, I suppose, it's atmospheric projection or... I mean, and these are kind of, you know, 
they're probably dancing around the subject in the sense that, yeah, it probably is light, you know, in the sense that, like, if that building was not full of water and the walls weren't rock, but they were plywood, it probably would still work spatially on a huge number of levels, right? And so there's something about that then. So you're talking about framing views and then you're getting this these washes of zenithal light from above that are responding to, I suppose, the day, but they're not directly for view. They are for lighting the spaces and kind of ambient lighting. But then you need this connection that's framed to something much more distant, right? That, that is, so I find that, and it is something that a lot of great buildings and spaces do. But you're saying even now from a scientific perspective, when we understand the body and we understand how our eyes are responding to these things, these are good practices. These are useful things that we should be talking about. So I think that's a very nice one. I mean, it's interesting because as you were talking, I was kind of um, thinking of uh, I, 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 like a, a, another or different examples where I felt very comfortable. And, um, you know, early industrial buildings before lighting was a major thing, like artificial lighting, and they were cold, but they have these incredible north light spaces. And of course, like a lot of artists gravitated to those spaces and a lot of other people as soon as the industry's moved on. And there is something incredibly calming about those spaces, you know, um, when you're in them. And it's 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 not to do with the practicality of that level of roof lighting, but there is something to do with it that has produced this kind of ambient comfort in them. I mean, I've spent a day in in Dia Beacon, which is this kind of warehouse with just it's all these lights and of course the art is fantastic but you weren't really interested in the art it was the experience of light in that space that I found kind of incredible and of course in day-to-day existence we're not really connected with that as much and I'm also now as I'm thinking are the early 20th century experiments like the open air school projects you know that Diker did and people like this so that there were people pushing at this but then the idea of the sealed air-conditioned block became so cost effective for a particular type of architectural production that it just basically blew all of that stuff out of the water. And effectively, we all live in these deep plan, curtain wall wrapped blocks. But what you're saying is that maybe if they were more shallow plan, less to do with core and circulation efficiency and more to do with spatial efficiency, we might actually end up with more usable buildings long term or if they're deep plan, that they would have a consideration of zenithal light as part of their consideration in an ideal world, right? Am I making sense? Yeah, although the, I mean, for the, if you think about deep plans with zenithal light, it only really works for a single level. Yeah. Because uh, as soon as you lose, I mean, you can work with light pipes and whatnot, but as soon as you lose the visual connection that you are having outside light coming to uh, illuminate you, like light pipes where you disconnect the light that you get with which seems harsh and cold quote-unquote cold um the the benefits of daylight are just uh, are reduced to a free light so to speak i mean free to some extent because then it brings heat and whatever and you have to manage it but uh where i i do agree but uh yeah narrow plan bilateral daylit buildings of course are always um uh, are what we could do before because anyway beyond six meters uh, depth you couldn't sell it or rent it because it was just dark yeah. too dark 
And uh, f fortunately, between the energy crisis and the, maybe the emergence of more awareness about our needs and uh, uh, our need to reconnect to more tangible aspects, uh, physical objects, at, at least I see that in the younger generation, we're back to vinyl discs yeah. and uh, yeah. these things that you can touch and have a meaning, a physical meaning, rather than everything being digital. I mean, you have, of course, both currents at the same time, uh, with AI and uh, metaverse on the one hand, and, um, and and with these tangible things on the other. But um, the uh, th these deep floor plans are only good, good if we can say that, for economic reasons, and we can even debate that. But they have been, yeah, they have. Uh, emerged because they're also easier to to deal with. If you want to deal with a narrow plan, uh, bilateral lit, with some zenithal openings as well, you have so much variability to to take care of. So going back to the north facing openings that you were mm -hmm. talking about, which are indeed beautiful, and sometimes I have to fight against this preconception, very odd preconception that north windows would have no light. I yeah. mean, sometimes you hear that. Yeah, it's crazy, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it's totally crazy. Yeah. This is the most abundant and accessible light because you don't need or almost don't need to protect yourself from it because it's not never too much. Um, but so the, this variability has been uh, sort of resisted to uh, in the 30s or so when we were so happy to have air conditioning and electric lighting. And then uh, we had the energy crisis, fortunately, and then we uh, are back to it being easier to manage something sealed and then we can control the mechanical ventilation and uh, electric lighting. And with LEDs now, it's a, not such a big deal to use energy for lighting. But it's not just about that. It's, it's about our deeply ingrained connect need for a connection to the outdoors, whether through air or through light. Um, and uh, and also the levels that they and also this variability to actually. Uh, so, yeah, that's fantastic. That's <laughs> really beautiful. And we might wrap it there because I think like we could go for hours and this, this is your research. And I urge listeners to, you know, get into it and have a look at it. I think it's an interesting way to look at plan order. It's a really interesting to look at way to look at the history of architecture via our relationship to light. I think you're opening up an area of research, which we've sort of done, you know, on a humanities based level, which is I'm not denigrating. I, I absolutely appreciate that. But now layering it up with these kind of very concrete understandings of how this affects human well-being and psychology and our ability to interact and pay attention and live lives that aren't riddled with anxiety and <laughs> depression, which, of course, comes from human, the human society as well, but seems to also come from the environments that we've built for ourselves like that. They seem to actually aggravate these sides of things. We always close these interviews with one question, which was that if you were to give a piece of advice to somebody setting out to study architecture, what would it be? It could be anything. Maybe to build for who will occupy the building and build for the long term, uh, being aware that you don't know what the building will become in the future. So no over-specification. It's for humans, but for humans which will have different needs in the next 100 years. So it's a big responsibility to build a building. That's a really nice uh, observation to close on. Professor Marilyn Anderson, thank you so much. 
thanks everyone for listening and staying with us to this point um, stay tuned there'll be another conversation in about two weeks time until then thanks a bit bye <laughs>